Amen. Good morning. If you find your place in Exodus chapter 20. This will be our last week in the book of Exodus for a while. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or is anything else that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunders, the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Well, have you ever tried to put something together and you didn't have very good directions for doing so? Uh, A few weeks ago, I was putting a faucet together, installing a faucet. And I got to one place uh, as I was installing it, and the directions weren't all that clear. Uh, there was this little bolt that was underneath the faucet, and then there was an opening in the bolt. And it said to put the opening towards the back of the sink. Now, the faucet is kind of in between the, between the sink bowl and then the back wall. And so I'm thinking, do they mean the back of the sink bowl, or do they mean the back wall? So I kind of debate... And just kind of debating what's which way they're thinking. And I chose the sink bowl. And then I put it all together. And I'm under there you know, with a wrench. And it was you know, really tight space. Put it all together. And then I realized it was the wrong way. So I had to take everything back apart and change it around. Now that was a little bit frustrating. Um, but I don't think quite as frustrating as some directions that I found online for a projector stand that people were putting together. I don't think they quite understood the English language that well. Here's the directions. Put the tripod screen on the floor vertically. Press the unlock button of tripod. Outspread fully. Put on the floor steadily. Number two. Circumgyrate the housing to horizontal station of screen. 
put the hand to the hand pedestal. Number three, lift the telescopic stick. It can adjust the height optionally until open the screen to the right place. Press the lock wrench, fix up the height of stick, open the lock wrench, and push the handle with screen to lowest station, then press the lock wrench. Number four, finally, close the screen. Please do it contrarily. Final note. When you pull up and down the stick, drench the stick by your hand. Put the stick up and down slowly. Prevent the fast up and down of stick. The hang break away from the hang pedestal. Damage the, damage the screen and injury. You got that down? I, I can't imagine putting something together quite like that. Thankfully, God doesn't give us those kind of directions. In the passage that we're looking at today, God enters into a covenant with his people, with Israel. And uh, note that this covenant comes after God rescues them, not before. It's not a condition of uh, being rescued. God rescues them from Egypt and then he makes a covenant with them. And he gives them the law. Now, we're looking at the Ten Commandments today. And I'm not going to look through each of the individual Ten Commandments. We'll probably do that at some later time. But today I want to kind of look at a bird's eye view of this idea of this covenant of the law that God gives the people at Sinai. And I think we need to know three things about the law in kind of a general sense. And the first is that the law was a blessing to Israel. The law was a blessing because it told Israel specifically what God required. They never had to doubt what God wanted from them because they had specific clear instruction from God what God wanted. And this is different from some of the other nations who didn't understand what God's, their God's will was. And so they had to kind of guess and hope that they got it right. According to the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology, these laws, speaking of the laws at Sinai, were among Israel's most precious possessions. Obedience to them distinguished the people from all other nations. And we see that these laws, as it goes throughout the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, they go down to the most minute of details. In chapter 1, verse 28, for example, and following, it talks about the situation of what, what do you do if an ox gores somebody else? Uh, and what do you do if this ox has been accustomed to goring someone else? There's another passage that talks about what happens if you dig a pit and somebody falls in the pit. Who's responsible? What if an animal falls in the pit? Another situation talks about, so what if you give your friend something valuable to hold on to and then a thief comes and steals what, he gives your, what, uh, what you gave your friend? How do you handle that? Who's responsible for paying for that? And so in the law, we see that the Israelites have very specific guidelines for what they're going to do. Very specific guidelines for how they're going to experience the blessed life, how they're going to please God, and also, contrarily, what things displease God. And so we, so we see throughout the Scripture that no, a number of the Israelites take delight in God's law. We might think about the law as something that's kind of oppressive, but the Israelites, they longed for God's law. They delighted in God's law. Psalm 119 verse 20 says, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 97 of that chapter says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verses 104 to 105 says, Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
And so God gives Israel this law and it is a blessing to Israel because now they don't need to question what God wants from them. When the dispute comes up, they have clearly in the scripture how to handle that dispute and how to be most pleasing to God. Yet though the law is a blessing, the law also involved a curse for Israel. This uh, the book of Exodus, and specifically uh, more so in Deuteronomy, is written in the form of a, of a treaty or a covenant. Uh, and in a covenant, what would happen was someone would enter into a covenant and there would be stipulations that they would have to keep. And if they kept those stipulations, there would be a blessing that would be promised. And if they didn't keep those stipulations, there would be curses that would be promised. Now, when I grew up in church, I... I grew up in a church family, always went to church. And when I thought about the Old Testament, I always thought to myself, okay, so in the Old Testament, people were saved by keeping the law. And then in the New Testament, they're saved by Jesus or by grace. And I always thought about it in that term, but it's really not correct. Certainly some of the people in Jesus' day thought that. The Pharisees believed that, most likely, that they had to keep God's laws and it was about law-keeping. If they kept the laws, then God would uh, accept them. And so the Pharisees probably think that, but that's not what God originally intended. If you recall back to our study in the book of Genesis quite a while ago, we saw that God made a covenant with Abraham uh, in Exodus 15 and 18. And he made a number of promises to Abraham. He made the promise that you'll have a child. He made a promise you'll become a great nation. That he's going to give them this land. And he made a promise that through your seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And it says in the scriptures, and in the book of Exodus, that, or in Genesis, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Believe God, it was credited as righteousness. He had a faith in God, and God accepted that faith as righteousness. But what's interesting about that is that comes hundreds of years before the law is given. And so what that indicates to us, and then what the writers of the New Testament teach us, is that it's not that the law was salvific. The law wasn't something that people did as a means of salvation. That it was always by grace through faith. Even through Abraham, hundreds of years before the law was given, he was saved by faith. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So, if people weren't saved by the keeping of the law, if it wasn't about salvation, then why was the law given and what was its purpose? Now, from kind of a general perspective, the law was an expression of the will of God. And God gave it to Israel as kind of like their charter document or constitution. Like we have our constitution that kind of guides our life as a nation, that kind of governs how we understand law and how we understand how we operate. And in a similar way, the law was given to Israel in that sense. And the idea was that Israel would keep the law and God would kind of show the world what he's like through Israel. That Israel would be kind of his guiding light, his light to the nations to show the world what he was like. But the problem was Israel continually failed to keep God's law. Their covenant keeping was spotty at best and they experienced many curses for doing this. They experienced curses described in Deuteronomy chapter 28, curses on their livestock, their health, their family. And because of their 
continual disobedience, eventually they were sent into exile. And as they're in exile, they lose their influence, so to speak. They come under the authority of a foreign nation. And they never become the light to the nations that, they intend, that God intended for them to be. So then the question comes up. So God gives them the law. God makes this covenant with them. And the intention is that they would be a light to the nations. But remember, God knows what's going to happen. He knows that they're going to fail in this task. But why does he still give them the law? Why does he still make this covenant if he knows that they're going to fail? I think the Apostle Paul gives us an insight in the book of Galatians and Romans. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Romans 5 verse 20 says, Now the law came to increase the trespass. Romans 7.13 says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So part of the reason that God gave Israel the law was to show them just how sinful they were. And what a law does is it exposes our sinfulness. I don't know if you ever tried to maybe kick a bad habit. And maybe you think in your mind, okay, I've got a handle on this. This isn't a really big problem. But then when you start to try to do it, you start to realize how big of a problem it is. Uh, I've known for a long time, since I was a kid, I tend to shake my legs when I'm uh, sitting down sometimes. And I thought, well, you know, it's something I control. I don't do it all that much. But then I got married, and I'm sitting next to Stephanie, shaking the whole house. And uh, she says to me, could you please stop? And I'm like, okay. Five seconds later, I start again. She's like, can you please stop? Five seconds later, start again. Can you please stop? And I'm like, didn't realize how much I was doing it. And without even thinking about it, I just keep going back to doing it. And I had to be really conscious about consciously decide I'm not going to do this. And in the same way, though, when the law comes to us, it exposes our sin. Maybe before the law comes, before we see a command not to do something or to do something, we don't think about it as a big problem. We don't realize the depth that we've fallen into. But when the law comes, it shows us the depth that we fail to meet God's commands. And ultimately, it points us to Christ. But what the, uh, the other thing that the law can do is that the law can increase sin. And how that happens, and why that happens, I don't... I don't completely understand why, but it can actually cause us to make to sin more frequent, frequently. I mean, it's kind of in our sin nature to kind of test the boundaries of what we think is right. Uh, researcher Leanne Birch, developmental psychologist from Penn State University, did this study with uh, hundreds or, or many different children. And uh, she gave them a big meal, and then she turned them loose in this room that was filled with all kinds of junk food. And what she says is, what we see is that some kids eat almost nothing. But other kids really chow down. And one of the things that predicts how much they eat is the extent to which parents have restricted their access to high-fat, high-sugar food in the past. The more kids have been restricted, the more they eat. What it discovered is, the amount that they ate is that if they were told that junk food was bad, that they shouldn't do it, 
It made him eat it more. In the same way, the law can actually increase sin. And so the reality is for Israel and for any who try to keep the law, whether it's the law of the Ten Commandments, the law of the Old Testament, or a law that we create ourselves, the ultimate result is failure and the recognition of sin that comes along with that. And ultimately a recognition that the curse is coming. And that's what Israel had to realize, and that's what they had to come to grips with. They kept failing to keep the law, and so they had this understanding that judgment, a curse, was coming. And that's what the prophets do. They tell the people, you've broken the law, and so judgment is coming. And the reason was because there was only one who could keep the law. There was one, only one who could be the true Israel, and his name was Jesus. And he came to the earth and lived a perfectly sinless life, kept the law in every way. But rather than experiencing the blessings of the covenant, he experienced the curses of the covenant. He experienced condemnation from God, judgment, and the curse that sin deserves. In so doing, he freed us from the curse of the law. And so that when we look at God's law, we no longer need to look at it with a sense of dread as we see that we don't measure up to what God calls us to. We don't need to look at it in that way with a sense of condemnation. Because Christ paid the penalty for our sin. So we're freed from that guilt and condemnation as it's described in Romans 8 verses 1 to 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So that's great. Christ frees us from the guilt and condemnation of the law. He frees us from having to keep the Old Testament law. But some people stop there. But not only did Jesus save us from the curse of the law, but he also gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And anyone who's believed in Jesus has the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And what the Holy Spirit does is he allows us and gives us the ability to keep the law in a way that the people in the Old Testament never could do. Not in the same sense of keeping, you know, meticulously trying to go through and find every last tittle of the law to try to keep every last bit of it but he helps us to keep the law in a new way jesus said the whole law is summed up in one word to love your neighbor as yourself so that's the whole law it's loving your neighbor as yourself and loving god with all your heart soul mind and strength i mean that's what the law is i mean it works out in particulars for israel and their particular situation and how we understand love but that's the basis of the whole Uh, Old Testament law is loving God and loving your neighbor. And the Holy Spirit helps us to do that, to do what the law could never do. And so we strive to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as ourselves. But as we do it, we do it in a new way. It's not, I'm going to do this, I'm going to show you love because it says in Exodus 20 verse whatever that I have to do that. It's no, I'm going to show you love because God has shown me love. I'm going to show you love because God has done so much for me. And how could I do anything else but show you love? He's put his spirit inside of me and he's made me new. It's really a matter of motivation. Psychologists talk about uh, the difference between extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. Extrinsic motivation is kind of motivation that comes from the outside. So let's say you're in a race 
And uh, there's a $1,000 prize for the winner of the race. And the only reason you're competing is to get that $1,000 prize. That would be an extrinsic motivation. It's somebody's giving you a reward to compete. But if you're participating in the race and you think to yourself, well, I don't know if I could win, and I don't really care that much if I would win, it'd be nice. But I like to run, I like to compete. That's kind of an intrinsic motivation. It comes from the inside. And that's kind of the difference between life under the law and life in the Spirit. Life under the law says, do this because it says it to do this. Life in the Spirit, I do this because of who I am. Because of who Christ is making me to be. Because of what He's done for me. Because His Spirit is living inside of me. I must be loving because Christ is making me a loving person. I must be fair with others because God is always fair with me. It's a difference between doing what we're supposed to do and doing what we want to do. The Holy Spirit comes inside and He makes us want to keep God's law. Not just because we fear judgment, but because we love God. But then we think about, oh, so if that's the case, if Christ frees us from the law and live, gives us this Holy Spirit to live inside of us, then what good is the law? I mean, should we throw out the Old Testament and just kind of forget about that and say we're going to live a life of love and live in the Spirit and whatnot? I think if we do that, we make a huge mistake. 2 Timothy 3, 14, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God for, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When we think about this passage, I always thought about you know Paul saying, okay, so the Bible is profitable for all these things. God gave us His Word for all these things. And that's true, but what's interesting is that when Paul wrote this, there wasn't really much of a New Testament at that point. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the law, the prophets. And so he says, the Old Testament is profitable for all these things, for correction, for teaching, for training in righteousness. So I think what Paul is doing is he's placing a high value on the Old Testament and he's indicating to us that for us as believers, the law, is, though it's not binding in the same sense it was binding to Israel, it is a guide to us. It educates us and shows us what God is like. It shows us what God uh, desires, what God doesn't desire, what offends God. It shows us the heart of God and ultimately it points us to Christ. Now, we might look at the Old Testament and look at some of the kind of what we might think of as weird commands. You know, some of the kind of civil and ceremonial things that the Israel did. Um, and we look at those things, and those things might not directly to apply to us in the same way that it, they applied to Israel. But we can look at them and learn something about the character of God and what He's doing throughout history. And we see how those things are fulfilled in Christ. So the law educates us and the law points us to Christ. And throughout the history of the church, there's been kind of two errors that people have fallen into in regards to the law. The first error is the error of legalism. And legalism is essentially this idea that by my performance in keeping the law, then I'll find salvation or that God will accept me because of my performance in keeping the law. 
And sometimes what will happen is it happened in the Pharisees in Jesus' day was legalists will keep the law, they'll keep the letter of the law, but they won't keep the heart of it. They'll do the outward right things, but in their hearts they're far from God. And ultimately, when we do that, when we rely on the law as a means of justifying ourselves before God, ultimately we're met with failure and ultimately we experience a curse. But the other error that believers have fallen into, and I think it's more prevalent in our day, is the error of license or antinomianism. And that's the belief that Christ has freed me, he's, given me uh, he's forgiven me of my sins, and so now I can just do whatever I want. It doesn't matter what I do. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Paul asks his readers that question. Should I sin that grace may abound? And he says, may it never be. He says, Are we t- how can we who died to sin still live in it? Because the reality is that while we're freed from the Old Testament law in the sense that Israel was bound to it, while we're freed from it, Christ calls us through His Spirit to a deeper holiness than the law could ever give us. Jeremiah talks about the new covenant being a law that's written on our hearts. In the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about the law and uh, he says, you've heard that it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you're angry at your brother, you're guilty. He says, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And so life in the Spirit, it's not that we just get it and say, oh, I can just do whatever, whatever I want. But through the Spirit, God calls us to a deeper holiness. A holiness that's not based on the external code, but a holiness that comes from the inside out. That changes not just our behavior, but our inner motivations. That makes us loving people, not just because it says to love, but because God has changed our hearts. That's the holiness He's calling to us to. A person gripped by the gospel is led by the Spirit of of God. And the law directs him, guides him, shows him what God would want, shows him what's on God's, God's heart. And ultimately, in our failure, when we see how we sometimes fail to measure up, it points us to Christ and His forgiveness. And it points us to the Holy Spirit to rely on Him to change us. In ways that the external code, the law, could never do. The law is a blessing. The law involves a curse. The law is a guide. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you came to the earth and lived a sinless life and fulfilled all the demands of the law, experiencing the curse of the law for us so that we might find freedom, so that we would no longer be bound by the external code of the law to experience the judgment because we've uh, failed to to stand up to your standards, Lord. So we thank you for that, but we also thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit and that because of your Holy Spirit, you give us the ability to live lives of holiness, lives that are honoring to you. Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts to make us people who love you with all of our hearts and love other people. That our actions, our behaviors, our motivations, our thoughts, everything that we do would be driven by love. Not just as an external of trying to keep a command, but internally that you would transform us to make us into the people that you want us to be. Lord, we thank you that 
You never fail us. You never give up on us. And that each step of the way, you're with us and you empower us to do what you've called us to do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.